So if you find yourself spinning your wheels or doing things that are just insurmountable, unless that insurmountable thing is like the one thing that you and all the world are good at, so people have to come to you to do it, um, you know, find something that's easier. And uh, usually that means ingenuity through intelligence. So find a smarter way to do your process to automate the e- the hard parts uh, or automate, I guess, the easy parts or figure out what's the core of the problem. But yeah, uh, solve it not with uh, lifting more, but with smarter techniques, better algorithms and that kind of stuff. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of The Artists of Data Science. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram at The Artists of Data Science and on Twitter at Artists of Data. I'll be sharing awesome tips and wisdom on data science as well as clips from the show. Join the free open mastermind Slack channel by going to bit.ly.com forward slash Artists of Data Science, where I'll keep you updated on bi-weekly open office hours that I'll be hosting for the community. I'm your host, Harpreet Sahota. Let's ride this beat out into another awesome episode. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Our guest today is a computer scientist turned data skeptic who has a truly wide scope of interest, ranging from AI, machine learning and statistics to data provenance, data governance, econometrics, and meteorology. His background in artificial intelligence, machine learning, and statistics, as well as his love for SQL and software design, has made him a sought-after consultant in the data science field. He spent over a decade helping organizations develop products and strategies that are evidence-based and data-driven, having amassed professional experience, which covers industries such as ad tech, market research, e-commerce, video games, image recognition, and satellite communication. He's been an advisor for a number of early stage startups and consults with growth companies to deliver end-to-end data solutions. Since 2014, he's hosted a wildly popular podcast, which has interviews and discussions of topics related to data science, statistics, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and the like, all from the perspective of applying critical thinking and the scientific method to evaluate the veracity of claims and efficacy of approaches. So please help me in welcoming our guest today, host of Data Skeptic, the number one data-related podcast on iTunes, Kyle Pollack. Kyle, thank you so much for taking time out of your schedule to be here today. I really, really appreciate you. Hey, totally my pleasure. Glad to be here. Thanks for the invite. So talk to me a little bit about your path into data science. What sparked your interest? Where did you start? And kind of how did you get to where you are today? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess I have had a lifelong fascination with computers. And, I, you know, I could have told you at four years old, I was going to be a computer scientist. That was just an obvious path. And naturally, along that journey, I became interested in artificial intelligence. And that really became my focus. And as I studied that, um, I guess I originally thought I might go a more academic path, try and go for professorship, something like that. But uh, while in grad school, I started working a part-time job just to afford to be in grad school, basically. And that was at a very unique time. And I got in a somewhat unique place, uh, nothing particularly special. Uh, we're a search engine marketing company. So we help small businesses use Google AdWords, basically. Um, but as you might expect, there's a whole lot of what would eventually be called data science that went on there. And my AI skills transferred very well. Um, What might not be abundantly obvious to everyone is that AI is very largely statistics and a lot of software design. And those two things work wonderfully in industry, especially, you know, at the time I'm talking about, which was pre a lot of things that we have today. There wasn't the cloud. There wasn't CICD. There wasn't all this kind of stuff. Uh, There was just a lot of elbow grease to do in the rudimentary versions of those. So um, I learned a lot of lessons about working and decided, I guess I like that better or simply was more successful with that than in academia and uh, just kind of focused on that path. That job led to an opportunity to move and that led out to California. And um, I guess the rest is history. I worked in you know a couple of various capacities doing different data science things. And at some point, 
Um, after I was at a startup that imploded, I decided I should strike it out on my own, became an independent consultant. And after about a year of that, started building a team. And now we're a you know, we're, I guess, a media company, as you mentioned, we do the podcast, but uh, where most of the revenue comes from is really our work as a boutique consulting group. So we help small and medium enterprises figure out how to do machine learning in the cloud, in particular with real time and streaming kinds of things. What does it mean to you to be a data skeptic? And at what point in your journey did you start to become a data skeptic? Well, when I say skeptic, I really mean, uh, maybe I should preface it as scientific skeptic. I mean it the way people like James Randi and Penn and Teller mean it. Um, there are people who say like, well, I'm a skeptic of climate change or I'm a skeptic of vaccines. Those aren't, that's not skepticism. Those are denial activities. If, if you think vaccines cause autism, the science doesn't agree with that. Um, skepticism is about, it's, it's really the Bayesian process, taking in as much information as you can, weighing it based on the propensity for that evidence and having a posterior belief that is most in line with the truest version of the world you can know. Um, so, I mean, just at the core, I, I feel like I don't have to necessarily even defend that. I want to you know, believe as many true things as I can and as few false things as possible. But when you put the data in front of that, data skeptic becomes something kind of interesting to me. And that's where early on in the show, I started with the tagline, we're skeptical of and with data, because data is both a tool and something that can be misused. So it's really about the methodologies and the process of analysis and uh, how to be skeptical and how to be clever and answer questions with the right data sets. So um, I guess more practically, I became a data skeptic if I have to put a date on it. Really at that first job that I'd mentioned when uh, that kind of pulled me out of academia, this was... As I mentioned, you know, at an early point before a lot of the modern business infrastructure existed, there were concepts of data warehousing floating around, but it was pretty new. And this was a little startup that grew really fast. So um, I had not yet encountered the phrase, a single source of truth, but this would be the venue in which I would discover it and its importance because this company had three or four different versions of the data and not everything agreed. And I was like, wow, the, the database is wrong and inconsistent. And, and what does truth mean? And and ultimately, I think I hope I help that company come up with the answer and figure out the general engineering scope to be able to answer questions like that and have a single source of truth. But um, it was a struggle and, and still for a lot of people remains so. So there were important lessons for me there that, you know, while numbers and math are always the process, there's something. Yeah, like I said, you have to be both skeptical of and with. So that would be my, my origin of data skepticism, I suppose. I really, really like that definition of skeptic, man. It totally resonates with me. Um, I, I very beautifully put. So talk to me a bit about, um, you know, you've, you've had such an awesome journey in data science since before data science was, you know, quote unquote, a thing. Um, what do you think, you know, the next big thing in data science uh, is going to be in the next, say, two to five years? Well, I'll look at it in two ways, the engineering side and the like academic side. On the engineering side, I think there's going to be a continued progression of improved toolings, um, easier and faster and better ways to do stuff, more automation, more transfer learning, more serverless, more auto ML. Um, but just as, you know, uh, data skeptic, the operation I run today were 12 people, depending on how you want to count it. If I had built this organization 15 years ago, I would have needed 100 people. I could have never got this off the ground. You know, I would have needed people to run servers that I now just spin up in the cloud. And I think those sorts of general trends and efficiencies are going to continue. And what a data scientist can do today, or maybe I should say what 10 data scientists can do today will be done by one in two to five years, maybe more on the five-year end. Um, on the academic side, where do I think breakthroughs are going to come from and interesting stuff like that? I think there's a lot of neat stuff going on in theory of database design and tying together ideas, you know, acid compliance, the CAP theorem, Paxos, all these kind of complex systems and finding unique ways to serve up tools that are customized and hyper efficient so that 
maybe some of that stuff is a utility or more of a utility and data people can think less low level and do more high level stuff. And the, the bottom is the plumbing is handled for you. Um, I've been personally getting very interested at, well, not just interested, but applying something called probabilistic data structures. And uh, I think there's great potential for more research and things to come there, or just the application of the work that exists today. I think those are underused things. Um, I'm also very excited for perhaps uh, the theoretical side results to come out of like algebraic circuit complexity, things like, you know, uh, class NC and complexity theory and information theory and stuff like that to give us useful novel tools for studying deep learning, where maybe, I don't know if it's tuning learning rates or talking about upper and lower bounds, but some ways that complexity theory can help move uh, a lot of the deep learning processes to some some sort of next level, whatever that means. Um, five years, is it going to happen? I don't know, but uh, it wouldn't be surprising for some cool breakthrough to come out. Are you an aspiring data scientist struggling to break into the field? Well, then check out dsdj.co forward slash artists to reserve your spot for a free informational webinar on how you can break into the field. That's going to be filled with amazing tips that are specifically designed to help you land your first job. Check it out. dsdj.co forward slash artists. That's pretty interesting. So what do you think in the next two to five years in this vision you have of the future is going to separate the good data scientists from the great data scientists? Um, good and great. I don't know. I, I guess uh, good and great often will differ really just by luck. You know, uh, who's a, the most successful data scientist? Well, it was a smart one who got a, a job at a good company. And also that company had a bit of luck or a bit of success. Um, you know, you could take two people who start out identically and a little bit of chance plays a role. So maybe that's the distinction between good and great. Um, but I guess greatness is achieved by a commitment to your craft and pursuing it. Uh, perhaps that's what you mean. Probabilistic data structures. Can you touch on that just real briefly at a high level? Like uh, that's not something I've been exposed to. And it sounds like such an interesting concept. And I think our, our audience would just love to get like a, a little primer on that, if you wouldn't mind. Yeah, sure. I'll give you the high level and feel free to ask as many questions as you'd like. I'm really into this. But um, to understand these, you've got to be able to understand hashing. So I'll take a little bit of that for granted that everyone knows you can apply a hash function to some value and you should get a uniformly distributed random or seemingly random output from it. Um, so if you hash something, you get this, this key that should have very few collisions. So it's unique, it's isomorphic, um, but it's more distributed. Now, what if you hash it twice? So two different hashing functions. Well, by definition, then, um, if you take a single object and you hash it twice, and then you take another object that you're not sure if you've seen it before and you hash that twice, um, the odds of having two collisions in a row like that are astronomically small. So you can take advantage of that mathematical principle. Let me make it a little bit more practical, maybe. Think of something like web traffic. When people are visiting your website, there's a ton of metadata floating back and forth. One thing that gets passed is called the um, user agent string, which usually just describes something about the software, like your browser. It'll say, this is Chrome, this version might have a few hints about what plugins you have installed, although I know like privacy stuff is making that more and more anonymous. But we still know something about the browser. And if you develop like your own crawler, it'll say, I'm the Google bot or I'm the Bing bot. So um, there's a variety of these. New ones come out all the time. Any developer can invent their own. If you want to count those, you have some interesting challenges because you don't know the set in advance that will show up. You don't know, you know, if new ones will be introduced at any time or all these kind of unpredictable things. Also, if you just tried to store every single one, you might run out of memory because there's so many. Um, but if you want to ask some simple question like, have I seen this particular user agent before? That's a really hard question to do it exactly. You have to store literally every agent you've ever seen, hash them all and look them up. But if we use a probabilistic data structure, it's a compromise. You say, well, look, I don't need to know 100% for sure. 
I'm good with maybe 99% for sure, or like some tunable accuracy like that. And then that's an important trade-off you can study. But if you're good with like 99% accurate, you can get that result with way less memory. So you don't need some expensive server, a lot of engineering. Um, and when you don't need those things, you can maybe deploy this at scale in a lot of cases. So count many things, count the mention of uh, keywords, count all types of stuff, and uh, use those as features for machine learning. So the one I'm kind of describing is like a bloom filter, which is your best place to get started. Go Google bloom filter. You'll find lots of good demos and talks and stuff on it. But there's a whole collection of other things like this. Hyperlog log is another one that looks at the cardinality. So, you know, of a certain set, how many distinct values have I seen? All different ways to look at mostly streaming data where there's uh, constraints around memory and compute, but unbounded things could come through the stream. So uh, they're neat just because they take advantage of the these statistical tools, they're simple and they're like a, a free, cheap kind of thing in a way. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. How do you see probabilistic data structures uh, impacting society in like the next two to five years? Well, I think in a sort of ubiquitous way, there'll be something that different either different technologies will be developed around them um, and a good example is like redis if you're familiar with redis as a type of database it got famous for being a distributed key value store which it is but they've added a lot of features over time uh, and one of them i think they have bloom filter and maybe some other probabilistic data structure in there um, we rolled our own so i'm not using theirs but i'm aware they have something i think either they will continue investing in that or maybe there'll be a lot of competition but there'll be more tools like that, you know, open source stuff, cloud services, people will find a way to make this available. And then, you know, developers will consume it. So it'll open up new opportunities for uh, people to you know, apply those ideas in different areas. Maybe it's some medical domain thing where you want to count patients or count instances of DNA fragments or who knows what. Um, or it could be, you know, an e-commerce where you want to count um, the clickstream data or count something about the um, items people are looking at for use in a recommender system. I think it'll be impactful in the fact that it's ubiquitous, uh, like that famous line from uh, The Usual Suspects. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. That's what good data science does to me. It's really cool how you've got this kind of wide range of interest and, and you know, you're always, seems like you're always learning new things and you're using uh, your podcast kind of as a way to explore these new interesting things that, that you are into. Uh, could you talk to us uh, a bit about the data skeptic podcast mission statement i've heard you say that you know you plan on doing this podcast uh, for the rest of your life which i think is really awesome uh, what is it that you want people to take with them after listening to your show I guess I'd like them to take away of like a vernacular understanding of data and how to look at it. Um, that if you find my show interesting, I need you to be a steward of data science in the community. And I want to be one resource for you where when you encounter things in society or in your job or whatever, inefficiencies where data should be applied more, skepticism should be applied more, that I've helped you learn the tools and the techniques for doing that and get exposed to the ideas that um, apply in data science and um, helped you along in, in your career and wherever that takes you. Uh, so it's really an educational mission. Um, I guess I want to remain something that's fun and edutainment. I don't want to become necessarily a college course, although I don't know, uh, hopefully there's still decades ahead. Maybe there'll be some course we put out at some point. But really, I just want to be a casual place where people get exposed to deep ideas, not hype, um, not CEOs. I just I want to tell the story of how data is changing the world and talk to the people who are doing it. Um, part of that is I think I also want to be the long form story of AI, because I do think that uh, while we may not see artificial general intelligence in my lifetime, we will see some profound steps towards that. And I want to be the non-surface level uh, outlet for you to learn about how those things work, I guess. It's absolutely beautiful, man. You, and you've interviewed so many awesome people on your on your show. And I'm curious, you know, after having this exposure to to a ton of data scientists, how do you view data science itself? 
Do you think it's more of a art or more of a science? Well, I guess I got to answer this a little bit carefully given the title of the program. Um, but what I, it really depends on what you mean by art. So in my anecdotal experience, uh, just me, in industry, when I've encountered people who say, oh, this is an art and a science, that's always been someone who didn't bother to investigate the science thoroughly. And sometimes that phrase in particular is an indicator of someone who's either unwilling to investigate or, you know, due to some power struggle in a company or whatever, doesn't want to look at data-driven or evidence-based approaches. And um, they say, well, it needs my, you know, purview and I'm the only one who can look at some problem. And I, I have a philosophical issue with that. But I think there is another side to art. The dangerous side, I guess, is that art can embrace and art. Well, yeah, I guess that's the main point. Art in a lot of contexts embraces interpretation and even encourages it. And that part I'm not good with. Data science is about getting to the truth and the truth is not open to interpretation, but also the truth has nothing to fear from scrutiny. So if we mean art in that art is the application of the methods, maybe the art in how one accelerates the process of getting insights or telling the story or convincing an organization to act on the data or um, the art of getting the right data points to the key decision makers. There's art in that, sure, but it's all based in, in science and in, in sort of methodology. Perhaps also there's an art in the beauty of the logic. You know, analysis is to me not something banal. Like I think a lot of people look at numbers and spreadsheets as being this kind of boring thing, but I've always found that analysis is about discovery. And even though data needs to be processed in a methodological kind of exacting way, when you do it in a reproducible, auditable, maybe some kind of open source sort of way in which other people can look at that, there's a beauty and an art in the consensus by which all the experts look at something and say, yes, this is the process. This is the science. We all agree this is the road to truth. So... Um, for me, it's, it's, I guess, purely a science, but in the spirit of the title of the show, I'd say there's certainly an artistry in how one executes those methods in the most effective way. Yeah, no, definitely. I, I agree with that as well. Yeah, because I think the, the principles that guide us and the principles that guide the work that we do are definitely grounded um, in, in science for sure. But to me, it's the art comes from uh, the fact that two different data scientists can work on a, a, a problem using completely different methodologies, as you're saying, um, but still come up with like an equally good result. But as long as the principles they're kind of following are grounded in science. Uh, so yeah, I, 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 like your, yeah. I like your definition. That's, a, that's another strength too that I really like that you pointed out that multiple lines of evidence should all converge on the same answer. So even if, you know, five of us go off in five different directions, when we have consensus, that's powerful. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right on, man. Thank you for that. So I was wondering, uh, since we're kind of on this on this tip here, um, if we could talk about the creative process in data science, um, how do you think that that manifests itself? Well, I'm always reminded of the no free lunch theorem, which is another good one to Google. It's uh, at a high level, it means that of all the, there's like no best algorithm. There's no one optimization technique to rule them all. There are always, you know, every algorithm has a suite of, of use cases where it's best suited. So there's some artistry in maybe how you pick and approach, but I think most of the creative process is really about design. Um, for me, it's about like system design. How can I build something that uh, is sustainable and maintainable and is more of a process? There's been a his like historically, or at least the way I learned data science has always been this monolithic batch process. Get a big training data set, split it into test groups, train a model, deploy the model, maybe repeat. And there are some cases where you do want that lockstep, like a bank shouldn't just constantly release models. There's probably some review process, but more and more industry and the need of organizations is to do things in a more real-time way. So uh, the design of systems that enable that and allow collaboration across different frames of the data and all that is really where the creative process is, I found, most manifest. I was wondering if you can share some advice for some data scientists out there. Um, I know a lot of data scientists are working on projects and they feel some type of hesitation or fear because they're trying to get their project to be perfect before they release it to the world. They're trying to design their system, let's say, perfectly. Um, what tips do you have for anyone that's kind of trapped in that perfectionist mindset? 
Well, it's it's a tough situation. I think I would almost want to take it case by case because it really depends on the person. I mean, if this is somebody who, you know, if you're like truly Jimi Hendrix, just trying to like put the last second tweak on his great album or whatever, just release it. People will love it, you know, and maybe you can remaster it later. So perfection can hurt you. And if that's what you need to hear, maybe you should think about things like, how do I fail fast? Because iteration is important. Um, but perfection is also good. So maybe some of the listeners should be cultivating that attitude or, or not releasing things quite so quickly. Um, I don't know. It depends on what you're trying to get out of the world you're releasing things to. I wouldn't worry about like any kind of embarrassment layer, hesitation or fear, that kind of thing. You know, it, your stuff will disappear if you put out a project that's just lame. I don't think uh, who's the bully from uh, The Simpsons. Nelson is going to show up and do the haha thing too many times. Most stuff is just going to disappear. And being able to fall down but get up fast is important. I've learned a lot through quick iteration and also also through mentorship. So uh, I guess maybe getting back to the point that it goes case by case, that's the real secret. Find a mentor who can help you judge. Um, are you being a perfectionist? Uh, and maybe you should just release, get whatever you're doing out there. Or is this truly a good instinct you have? That's the hard question you've got to answer. And maybe a mentor can help you with it. As you know, data science is kind of the quote unquote sexiest job of the 21st century uh, as of late. And there's a lot of people trying to break into the field. Um, and there's definitely are, you know, a lot of barriers to entry because of the amount of knowledge that you have to accumulate in order to become successful as a data scientist. Um, do you have any tips for people who are coming uh, from a non-technical background and they're coming up to these technical concepts face to face for the first time? Um. Well, the the field is a technical field, so you're going to have to face those things. I guess it's to do it head on, to be honest about what you know, what you don't know, and come up with a good battle plan for learning. Um, yeah, you're not going to learn everything, and the scope of everything under the broad umbrella you might call data science is too big for anybody to master. You're going to have to figure out what parts you want to master. Um, Non-technical means a lot of different things to different people. Uh, I've heard people who were like, well, I have a master's in stats, but I didn't finish a PhD. I consider myself non-technical. And then there's like, you know, I was an English major, but I'm really good at Excel and I have a passion for X. So I'm going to get into that. Um, everybody needs to achieve the technological or technical level that's necessary for their role. So... Uh, I guess my advice is figure out where you are and where you want to be and draw the straightest line between those two. It's good practical advice. I like that. Um, and you mentioned, you know, there's a lot to learn in data science. And I think um, you, if you're choosing to be in data science, you've signed yourself up for a, a career of lifelong learning. Could you talk to us a bit about, uh, you know, your view of, of the importance of being a lifelong learner and um, maybe share some advice for aspiring data scientists out there who feel like they haven't learned enough yet to even consider breaking into the field. Well, that's an area where I've got to split it again into two groups because it's going to vary by person. So take that feeling. You're like, oh, I haven't learned enough. Well, that's true of everybody. I haven't learned enough um, myself. I, I think universally, that's a great sentiment to have. Um, so if you feel that moderate it. But, it, you know, I guess the question is, is it a confidence issue or is it true? And every person's going to have to answer that for themselves. Um, if it's something that's true, you're actually in a better situation because, oh, it's true that I haven't learned enough. What do I have to do? I have to go learn more. So uh, if you're not qualified, step one is go get qualified. <laughs> but if you are, and I don't want to belittle it, make it sound like that's easy. Obviously, that's a lot of studying and hard work. But I have good advice for you there and could elaborate on that. The other group for people where the problem is not that they haven't learned enough, it's confidence. That's a serious issue and you need to work on that because um, the process of learning is about feedback and getting rejected. So um, you've got to go out there at some point and get something from the world to point you in the right direction and, and you need practice. And um, uh, you're always going to be learning. So find a place that's suited for where you're at, but also can help you with growth in the direction you want to move. Um, 
So, yeah, it's it's coming down to that big question of is it confidence or is it true? The true part's easy. Just learn more. Uh, the confidence thing, I'm not necessarily the best person to help you with that, but except to say that uh, identify it if it's an issue and look into it. I like that a lot. So kind of on the flip side, like what is your advice for, for data scientists who they feel like they've learned enough? It just don't even need to learn anything else to be successful. Well, that's a sort of alarming perspective, I guess, just because I find it to be um, just very willfully untrue. If someone thinks that, I mean, maybe they're the smartest person around, but I have found that the pace the world moves at requires constant learning. Nothing about what I do on a day-to-day basis was around when I was in college. You know, the tools I was trained on, I mean, they still exist, but they're not uh, I don't want to say there isn't C++ anymore. There surely is, but it's used in embedded systems and in optimizing very specific things, or you're going to write some CUDA code. Most of us are going to work at much higher levels than that stuff and uh, work on libraries that didn't exist five years ago. And in five years, I'm going to be probably working on libraries that don't exist right now. Um, so yeah, the notion that you wouldn't be a lifelong learner is a little crazy to me. That's the one thing I truly love about the field of data science and being a data scientist is you've signed yourself up to be a student forever. And I absolutely love that. Um, so uh, it seems like you share the same sentiment as me. So that's, that's very reassuring. And I hope that our listeners are also, um, if you know, if you're out there trying to break into data science, just know that you've signed up for a field where you're continually going to have to learn and, uh, doesn't really matter if you feel like you haven't learned enough now because you're always going to feel like you haven't learned enough. And that's the beautiful part about being in this field. Um, so we talked a bit about, you know, technical skills and all that. Uh, and I think that that's where a lot of up and coming data scientists tend to focus on primarily rightfully. So it's such a key component to the work that we do. Um, but what would you say are some soft skills that candidates are missing that are really going to separate them from their competition? Well, I'm going to speak to uh, people who are really looking for their first job, because to me, there's a huge distinction between a first job and second job. Like it's night and day. After you've had some job, you understand so much more about industry and how to approach things um, that that group already has like exponentially more wisdom than those just starting out. So I think the most good can be done there. Let me talk to that group um, and say, first and foremost, it's about uh, getting out there. No one is going to come find you and say like, oh, we're, we've been looking for exactly you. And, and a search over the world has brought us to you, entry level person. <laughs> you need to get your foot in the door. And there are a hundred other feet trying to do the same thing. So uh, you will probably need to carve a unique path for yourself in some way. Yeah, identify all the companies you want to work for, go apply, but the odds that you're going to go to some website and put your upload your resume and get a job are astronomically small. Um, the purpose of the resume, the first step in anything is to get on a phone call. Your resume gets you the phone call. It doesn't get you the job. Um, also, some you know ingenuity can get you that phone call, but that's your first barrier to get to. Once you've got the phone call, everything from there is how do you get to the next step? So uh, there's also a little bit of lessons in sales that I didn't get till I was in industry. So I'll give you a quick lesson on what's called the funnel model. Um, visitors come in at the top of the funnel to your website. Maybe you got a thousand visitors. You need to have a good landing page and a good pitch so that 10% of the people will click to the next page and 10% of those will buy the product and 10% of those will come back and buy more later. And then you want to turn 10% into 20% and so on and so forth. So learn your numbers and learn about those processes going through the interview process, you'll get further and further at different companies, um, but figure out how you get in and figure out how you move those conversations forward. Starts with your resume, but it's about how you sell yourself uniquely. The biggest mistake I see people in that uh, age group, and by age, I don't mean biological age, I mean like career age. If you are zero to one years old in career age, the most common problem I see in a lot of applicants is when they say like, oh, I'm here to learn anything. I, I took a thousand random courses. I'm, you know, a puppy looking up, eager to work, put me to work. Well, sometimes that's helpful. And, you know, sometimes big consulting companies will hire up a, a big stable of graduates like that and then figure out later what to do with them. But mostly what people need is not someone who says like, oh, I'll do whatever you want. It's 
for you to come to the table and say, I'm really into this. I've been pursuing it in these ways. I've distinguished myself from my peers by, you know, getting really good at it in this regard. And you need me for those reasons. So whether that's uh, microservice architecture design, machine learning design, uh, coding, analysis, SQL skills, whatever it is, pick your one thing and run with it and present yourself with that skill best foot forward. Find someone who needs that skill. And as you're getting rejected, learn from it. You know, why did people say no? Um, a lot of the answers are going to be you're not experienced enough, which is fine because you're not. Um, but that's just a roadmap for what you need to do next. I like that approach. It seems like uh, pretty much you're saying is kind of specialize in one thing and um, gain experience in that one thing. Make that kind of a quote unquote superpower, for lack of a better word, um, and capitalize on that. Um, so I'm, I'm curious. Yeah, if nothing else, it shows me you can do it, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I'm curious on your view versus like, you know, uh, on certificates versus projects. Cause I know a lot of uh, people out there are just chasing certificates and just doing them one after the other kind of, to, to me, it's like, it's, it's almost like it's a passive way of learning. Uh, you know, you just sit in front of a computer, watching some guy teach, you get a certificate. Um, but, but yeah, what's your view on certificates versus self-directed learning and self-directed projects? Well, there's learning and there's the resume. And as far as learning goes, you need to do whatever works for you. Um, I can tell you what works for me and suits my personality, uh, but I don't know what works for you personally. So if it's a certificate, if you need to be part of a group and an eight-week deadline and all that, and you need that pressure, that social something or whatever – Absolutely go do that. Um, I personally am a little bit better with self-directed, self-guided, but I also take on too many projects at once and I finish things very slowly. Uh, those are things I consider in some ways strengths and weaknesses, but a little bit more of a weakness than a strength. Um, but I'm okay with it and I'm making terms with that. But you got to figure out what you want to balance. So what are your goals? What are you trying to achieve? And um, pick the thing that helps you learn the most. As far as certificates on a resume and all that, some people care. Um, if a person got the certificate themselves, they generally care a lot more than other people get it, I guess, to prove that they could go through it too. Um, as an employer, me personally, I don't necessarily look too hard at that kind of stuff because I found that the bar has gotten easier and easier to get on it. And it's like, you know, I want to be convinced otherwise that you can do the skill, not because you have some cert. But I know there are a lot of employers where that's a prerequisite or a, a large company who gets hundreds of applicants and can't handle them all has to have simple filters like, do you have an AWS cert? And if you want to get past that filter, you got to have that cert. For that group of people who is going down the project self-directed learning type of route, uh, do you have any tips for them on how they can come up with an idea for a project? Because um, I get a lot of questions from mentees and they always want to know which data set should I use for, for a project? Which algorithm should I use for a project? Do you think that's necessarily the right approach to go when it comes to um, wanting to build up a project? Well, I think it's uh, uh, maybe a misguided way to ask the question. For me, what I would ask a, of a, a mentee is, what are you trying to achieve? Um, and I don't know if you have a consensus amongst them or, or know already what your, your mentor mentees are trying to achieve, but you know, are you looking to develop the skill, to get a job, to make a social impact? And that's really what's going to direct the advice I would give you. If, you know, like, let's take that social impact. You want to help your city and get some data set out of the city portal and you're passionate about equestrian rights or pedestrians or homelessness or whatever it is. Um, don't worry about the algorithm or whatever, because the hardest part is going to be to turn that action, those, that data into something actionable. There's no fancy technique that's going to matter uh, unless you just want to you know, prove that you can use a technique. But if you're really after something impactful, it's got to be something very simple um, and very like raw to the data um, and probably will require a collaboration closely with the people who produce that data or the city or whoever. Um, if, on the other hand, you're like, oh, I'm trying to get into grad school, I want to put up a good GitHub profile, then yes, it would be more about demonstrate the techniques or if you're trying to get a job that you look as knowledgeable and presentable on the outside. So figure out what you're trying to achieve. And I think that'll guide most of the next steps on what you want to be doing. 
Yeah, I like that. I like that advice a lot. Yeah, I tend to um, tell my mentees that uh, just start with an, a question that's inherently interesting to you that you find interesting because the first thing is that that's going to keep you motivated throughout the process. Um, and if it is for you to perhaps land a job, then really think about what industry it is that you're trying to be a part of. Uh, then read up a bunch of case studies about how data science machine learning is being applied in that particular industry so that you can just uh, come up with some mental models for yourself and develop a, a bit of vocabulary for, for that particular industry and then work from there. And whatever the scope of your project is, cut it in half. Uh, think small. That's the only way to get yeah, stuff done. I feel like some people come up with these really huge projects and, you know, you got to you give them big ups for the for the the thought and wanting to put in the effort. But that can really kind of um, leave you to feeling stuck if you don't make progress quickly on it. Yeah, it's hard to move a mountain. Yeah. So you mentioned there's there's a you had advice for for the soft skills for that first group who are just breaking into the field. And, and you mentioned that there's you know, people who are maybe one to two years into their career, they've got a little bit more experience. Let's say that group of people who are, you know, one to two years in the, into their career or perhaps in their second job, um, do you have any tips for them if they were to find themselves uh, in a room full of executives and they need to communicate their ideas? Yeah, I guess in that scenario, first of all, you should understand the dynamics of the room and what they're what you're trying to accomplish. So, I have personally worked in mostly small and medium enterprise, a little bit of big business, but um, there's a world in which you walk into an executive boardroom and there's a lot of suits and ties and, uh, you know, even like a, a military style hierarchy where, you know, you should be careful about how much you speak and that kind of stuff. I've never been in that world. I know that world exists. If that's you, ignore my evidence, my advice and all that. But I have always been, or, or maybe I've read the room wrong, but I've always felt I was in rooms where it was very flat and very cool to chime in and say whatever. Um, you know, you got to read the room and make sure you're letting the leader of the meeting lead it. But I've never felt like, hey, uh, my comments would be out of place here. Although, uh, so I want to encourage people to speak up, but also be careful. Know what the purpose of the meeting is. Don't be a distraction. Um, if you've got to communicate your your information or your results or whatever, you have to know your audience. So who's going to be in there? Uh, ideally, think about if you could be two steps ahead of them. So I think everybody's seen the movie Groundhog Day where Bill Murray keeps repeating the same day. If you could do that, you'd eventually be perfect at this meeting. Uh, unfortunately, most of us don't have Bill Murray's power. So um, can in your mind, you simulate who is this person? What do I know about them? I've been in meetings with the CFO a bunch of times. He's a stickler for details. Maybe I should show up without you know, having any errors whatsoever in my data or uh, the marketing lead is always concerned about Facebook data. So make sure you merge things in and you come prepared to answer the questions you think you're going to get. Um, those people are trying to do their job, which may not be the same as your job. So if you can guess what they need to know, what decisions they're trying to make, and you can help inform those decisions, then you're ready to go. What's up, artists? Be sure to join the free Open Mastermind Slack community by going to bit.ly.com forward slash artists of data science. It's a great environment for us to talk all things data science, to learn together, to grow together. And I'll also keep you updated on the open bi-weekly office hours that I'll be hosting for our community. Check out the show on Instagram at the artists of data science. Follow us on Twitter at artists of data. Look forward to seeing you all there. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's great advice. Um, kind of good advice in general is just know your audience, no matter where you are, just know your audience. And I think you might be aging us a little bit with that uh, Groundhog Day reference. I, for one, definitely remember that movie. Um, I'm a huge Bill Murray fan. That should like, be a signed reading just culturally. Like it's just a good movie. No, anything by Bill Murray. Um, that's like <laughs> Bill Murray is I wish he was my best friend. Uh, have you seen The Very Merry Christmas on Netflix by any chance? Is this the documentary about all the people who've had strange encounters with him? No, this is actually Bill Murray's Christmas special. Uh, it's just like an hour long and it's just a Christmas musical special. And right around Christmas time, I had that thing on nonstop for like a month straight. It is the most amazing. Oh, Christmas I don't know. Special. I'll have to check it out. Oh yeah, dude. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> so, while we're on the wave here, you know, um, so I was wondering what advice or insight you could share 
with data scientists start breaking into the field, uh, you know, they come across these job postings and some of them seemingly want the abilities of an entire team wrapped up into one person. Uh, and they tend to end up feeling dejected or discouraged from applying. I was wondering if you might be able to share some tips or some insight uh, into that for them. Sure. So I, I'll spin this one on its head a little bit. Um, I know you feel how you feel, and I've been in a similar position earlier in my career, but uh, and it's it's easier said than done, but you should turn that sort of feeling of discouragement or dejection into one of gratitude because that company just gave you the list of checkboxes you need to check. Okay, it has 10 things and you only know two of them. Well, you love this field, right? Go learn the other eight. Um, now, I know it's not as simple as that, and that might be a mountain to climb. Also realize, though, that uh, a lot of those job descriptions, uh, there's very little science to how that stuff is put together. In fact, having now been under the hood and worked with recruiters and built teams and stuff like that, I know how what a comedy of errors that kind of stuff tends to be. Um, what usually happens is a company will either have an internal or external recruiter who does all the work. They're not an engineer. Um, they're just going to probably go find some random job description, copy and paste it. Uh, they don't even know better, right? And you'll have this weird Frankenstein monster of a job description that may or may not loosely correlate with the comp- with what the company needs. So just apply. What's the worst that's going to happen? You get rejected. No one, you know, no one cares. No one remembers uh, your resume. May just the worst that happens is you get into the pile and no one sees it. So just apply. Um, now, you should also examine that feeling because if you're like, "Whoa, I'm super unqualified for this," yeah, maybe it's because that's a padded job description, like I described, and you'll be fine. Uh, let the company make that decision, but also get some external advice. Um, you know, if you're a, a person with two years' experience, probably CTO is not the next logical step for you. Maybe, maybe if you're an all-star, but uh, maybe more like senior developer, senior data scientist is where you want to go next. So just make sure you're looking in the right place. But if you are, uh, that job description it's not a, a barrier um it's a list of like nice to haves and you can apply and they'll make a decision that's really good advice um i mean like if 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 you didn't apply they weren't going to call you back anyways right so like there is no totally. downside It'd be weird no if downside. they did yeah right uh but i like that idea of using the job description as a way to kind of guide your studies um I think a good thing that anybody breaking into the field could do is maybe take an inventory of five or six different job postings that are really resonating with you, uh, print them out on actual paper and highlight the commonalities between them. And then all of a sudden you've created a self-directed learning syllabus for yourself of skills that are going to get you into a job that you want to get into. Um, so definitely great really like idea. That approach as well. So last question here before we jump into the lightning round, uh, what's the one thing you want people to learn from your story? Well, I don't know that there's anything unique to my personal story. Uh, maybe my story is the story of data skeptic in some way. And uh, the story there is really that I guess the most useful, most powerful tools, most effective tools, that's all data driven. The um, I want to be the source that uh, and, and the story of data skeptic is sharing the, the things I've learned with people and um helping everyone understand that it's not always easy to manage data, store it, analyze it, and leverage it, but it's well worth it because the tools and methodologies that you can learn are uh, pretty much the most effective way to build things and to learn things and to optimize processes. So um, I guess the story of Data Skeptic would be about uh, being skeptical of data and learning the techniques to do so, and maybe that's what I hope people learn from it. So let's go ahead and jump into the lightning round. Uh, what's the number one book, fiction, nonfiction, or both, that you would recommend our audience read and your most impactful takeaway from it? Well, I'm really more partial to nonfiction anymore, and uh, in the spirit of some of our questions and who I presume the audience might be, I'm going to go with a book called Open Intro Statistics. You can get it as a free PDF or as like a ludicrously cheap down uh, real book. It's like 10 bucks on Amazon. I don't know if this is a myth or not, but somebody at 
uh, on our conference one told once told me that the printed version they uh keep it at cost and that means they have to adjust it due to the price of paper fluctuating so it's always like ten dollars and 47 cents or some weird number but in any event uh open intro because it's a great easy to follow to the point way to get on board with stats if you're not already um beyond that yeah there's a million different directions you could go i guess closest to data science and the ml side it'd be elements of statistical learning so uh, i guess that those are my two book recommendations awesome so what are you reading nowadays is there like a book that you're currently uh, in the middle of um well i've been really trying to get back into a book called kalmogorov complexity and its applications um, by ming li and paul vitani it's uh, an area of theory of computation that I've always been passionate about. And I've taken this COVID experience uh, to kind of focus uh, one thing on, on a product we're developing and then the rest of the time on learning some quantum computing stuff and a little bit more about Kolmogorov complexity. So what would you say is your favorite subtopic within data science? Well, at the moment, I guess I should say AI, but I'm going to go with probabilistic data structures. Uh, they've been so interesting and so useful to me in a particular application we're developing that uh, it's got me very excited about doing more with them. If we could somehow get a magical telephone that allowed you to contact 18-year-old Kyle, what would you tell him? Uh, buy Google stock and don't talk to girls named Susie. Um, honestly, I don't know. Um, yeah, I feel like every good and bad choice I made brought me exactly where I am, and it'd be a sort of existential suicide to say anything else. I also don't know that I could get through to myself at that age, so um, I guess just keep on keeping on. So what would you say is the best advice you've ever received? Oh, I think that's, uh, I'm not really a fortune cookie guy, but I've got a good one. It's uh, work smarter, not harder. That's good, man. Timeless, timeless advice. What does that mean yeah. to you? What, do, what does working uh, smarter, not harder mean to you? How does that kind of play itself out in your in your day to day? Well, I'll tell you, at the times when I have worked the hardest uh, for other people, like when I wasn't running my own company, you know, places where I was doing 70, 80 hour weeks because we were under these big deadlines or big pressures or whatever. Those were the times when, like, looking back, that company was in a disaster state and there was no reason for anybody to be doing things like that. We should have somehow taken a better assessment and found a way to be smarter about what we were doing. Um, so if you find yourself spinning your wheels or doing things that are just insurmountable, unless that insurmountable thing is like the one thing that you and all the world are good at, so people have to come to you to do it. Um, you know, find something that's easier. And uh, usually that means ingenuity through intelligence. So find a smarter way to do your process to automate the e the hard parts uh, or automate, I guess, the easy parts or figure out what's the core of the problem. But yeah, uh, solve it not with uh, lifting more, but with smarter techniques, better algorithms and that kind of stuff. What motivates you? I guess uh, it's really a burning desire to understand the mechanism of everything I encounter. It's very profound, man. I like that a lot. I like that a lot. Thank you. Uh, so what's the song that you currently have on repeat? Oh, it can only be a song. I was going to go with the album, man. I have been heads down for the last month coding on a project and listening to Save Us All by Be Like Max. So if I've got to pick one track, I guess it's Home Away From Home because... I've probably had that played. I don't know why I'm not the king on Spotify yet. I have been really running that uh, uh, front to back many times the last couple of weeks. Have you ever gotten this uh, message on Spotify app when you open it up that, yo, you're in the top 1% of fans for this particular artist? Has that happened to you with, with uh, Be Like Max yet? No, that's why I was saying I was surprised. Um, yeah. A couple of similar bands. I'm kind of big into the ska scene. Like I'm 1% on Big D and the Kids Table and I think on Skank and Pickle, but I got that like right away. Um, and I don't know why I'm not on a couple more bands, but that's uh, good then, right? Nice. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I like the ska too. Uh, I'm originally from California, uh, born and raised there. So uh, nice. The, the Aquabats were, were pretty awesome. Oh, yeah. And uh, I don't know. I don't know if some, Lime could be considered ska, but whatever they were, like I absolutely for love sure. That. Orange County scene, then yeah, yeah, man. OC's OC's awesome, man. So hey, how could people connect with you? Where could they find you? 
All right. Well, in terms of one-way communication, uh, weekly, you can catch me on Data Skeptic, like you'd mentioned. Uh, I'm doing a live stream on May 30th. Uh, it's six-year anniversary of the podcast, and we're also going to be unveiling um, some tools that we're going to give out, uh, new data science tools in this cloud thing I was mentioning we've been building out. So I'm excited about that, and we're going to do Q&A and stuff, so that's a place to meet. Beyond that, you can get on the Data Skeptic Slack channel. I'm always in there. Or... Um, you could try email, but you have to write really good emails. I get too much of it, and I miss a lot. It's just Kyle at dataskeptic.com. But, uh, oh, yeah, and then uh, Twitter, at dataskeptic. That's a good one, too. Kyle, thank you so, so much for taking time out of schedule to chat with me today. I really, really appreciate it. Can't, can't express my, my gratitude enough, man. Thank you. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 